37 years ago, I was in a jam. I had an idea for a book that needed to be written, but I didn't have a writer who could write it. On a lark, I picked up the phone and called an author who had had enormous success just before that with a book called Alien, based on the movie. Alan Dean Foster answered the phone, and we worked together on a book. Today, Alan Dean Foster is 75 years old. His wife is ill, and Disney, who publishes many of his books, including his best-selling Star Wars novel, has decided not to pay him anymore. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second, but first, here's a message from our featured nonprofit, buildon.org. Check them out. They're doing important work. I'm going to start a chapter because I believe the fight against poverty and illiteracy is a very big fight, and it's one that we need to be universally together in. We started a chapter together, and it proved to be a really great way for us to develop our leadership skills and get involved with a larger organization that would empower us to change our lives and the lives of individuals around the world and in our own community. What I took away from this whole experience was that the more you give, the more you gain. The harder I worked to improve the lives of others, the more it gave me a life-changing experience in return. Harlan Ellison, the controversial science fiction author who wrote some of the greatest Star Trek episodes in history, is perhaps most famous for a rant he did about paying the writer. I sell my soul, but at the highest rates. The highest rates. I don't take a piss without getting paid for it. The question is, why should you care? I'm a writer, so I know why I care. But why should you care? And there are two reasons for this. But first, a small aside about Alan Dean Foster. Alan, in addition to being a really good writer and a very nice guy, made a living for many, many years by writing science fiction novels based on other people's TV and movie properties. Because it turns out writing a science fiction novel is not the same as writing a script. It turns out that if you send Alan Dean Foster the screenplay for your movie, in a very short period of time, he can send back a novel that might be a better novel than your screenplay is going to be a movie. And this transaction, the idea that the writer will write, is fraught. And it's fraught for two reasons. The first reason is that almost all writers are individuals, small, small businesses, people without a staff. When I was starting out as a book packager, I worked from home, like most people these days, but few people in those days. And at the beginning, I went to great pains to pretend I was in a busy office. And then I realized people who write, people who invent things like books, aren't supposed to be in busy offices. That one of the things that we look for from somebody who's going to come up with an idea that will change our culture is that it's an individual. It's not a committee. But in order for those individuals to do their work, they can't be reliant on suing people all the time to get paid. And so, to support our culture for hundreds of years, we have erected a regime of copyright. The whole idea that it doesn't matter if you're a giant multinational or not, the deal is the deal. And the deal has been straightforward for a very long time. 
it's not negotiated because it's part of the understanding. We're a big company. We need an idea. We're a big company. We need a book. We're a big company. We would like to publish the thing you own a copyright in. And so the small operator can focus on their work, not on building a corporate institution that can play on an even playing field with other corporate institutions, which segues quite nicely into this idea of the rule of law, that the magic of our jurisprudence system is that we almost never go to court, that understanding the basic rules, for example, private property, make it easier to coexist with one another. Could someone start planting corn in your front yard and then demand that you sue them? Sure they could, but they don't because it is understood that things work better when they are working, not when bullies start suing people, but when we do what we say we were going to do, when we understand the difference between exploiting something that isn't ours and doing the work we said we are going to do. So somebody at Disney, not in charge, almost certainly a lawyer, said, wait a minute, I can come up with some complicated legal theory that might save this company $100,000, $500,000 here and there. I'm going to go do it. And if you don't like it, you can sue me. In Alan's case, they did offer to meet with him, but only if he would sign a non-disclosure agreement before the meeting, which is absurd. NDAs after a deal is done make it easier to negotiate in good faith. But before the deal is even discussed, that's pretty much unheard of. So what we're seeing here is a series of bad behaviors on the part of a super profitable giant corporation taking advantage of a single individual. Back to Harlan Ellison. Get a call yesterday from uh, a little film company down here in the Valley, and they're doing the packaging for, um, uh, for MGM on, uh, not MGM, for Warner Brothers, on Babylon 5, which I worked on. And I did a very long, very interesting uh, on-camera interview about the making of Babylon 5 early on when Joe Straczynski hired me. And they want to use it. A young woman calls me and she says, so we'd like to use it on the DVD. Uh, can that be arranged? And I said, absolutely. All you got to do is pay me. And she said, what? I said, you got to pay me. She said, well, everybody else is just, you know, doing it for nothing. I said, everybody else may be an asshole, but I'm not. I said, by what right would you call me and ask me to work for nothing? Do you get a paycheck? Well, yes. I says, does your boss get a paycheck? Do you, tell, do you pay the telecine guy? Do you pay the cameraman? Do you pay the cutters? Do you pay the, 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 the teamsters when they schlep the, your stuff on the trucks? Then how don't you pay you as, how would you go to a gas station and ask me to give you free gas? So Harlan's point, probably a little too broad, is this. If there is no writer, there is no Star Trek. If there is no writer... There is no alien book. If there is no writer, where do the ideas come from? Now, we have talked before on this podcast about how culture doesn't work if we have to pay every time we share an idea with one another. Ironically, I'm not paying Harlan for his two-sentence rant here because I'm not using it in a commercial way. Fair use is really important. I can't comment on what he said without quoting him. Quoting culture back and forth to each other is really important. The other thing we've talked about a little bit is the fact that copyright should not last forever. And again, ironically, Disney has been in the forefront of trying to make copyright last forever. Copyright 
The reason they keep extending the length of copyright is because of Mickey Mouse. They even named the law informally the Mickey Mouse Copyright Extension Act. Because when Disney is the owner of the copyright or the intellectual property, they and their squadron of lawyers enforce it as hard as they can. But it goes in both directions. And that is the key to this rant and the reason that everybody needs to care about it. Because it goes in both directions. Our culture is based on our mutual reliance on the rule of law. That we can do a deal that isn't 500 pages long with large escrow payments on both sides precisely because we understand what the words mean. We understand what the terms mean. The deal's the deal. We don't get to insist on renegotiating something simply because one side has more power than the other. That the creator should have the right to say yes and the right to say no. And that once the deal is done, the deal should be done. It doesn't matter if Disney moved some corporate shell pieces around. Pay the writer. There are always going to be conflicts between fair use, how does this get used, how does this get shared, when does money change hands, does it even make sense to ask Harlan Ellison to appear for free in a DVD, and the bedrock principle of making a deal and keeping it. That one of the things that we need to have to have rule of law is that when we lose, we have to know we lost because we played by the rules. When we won, we need to know we won because we played by the rules. If the rules are always in doubt, then everything will grind to a halt. And fortunately for people who love Alan's work, the rules are in place. We got to read the books he has written. We got the joy of the ideas that he has shared. And going forward, we're going to need more of those things, more of that connection, more of that creativity. So Bob Iger and the rest of the folks at Disney, if you're listening to this, you already know what to do. And for the rest of us, let's remember that a handshake deal works for a very important reason. The more time we spend papering over the deal because we don't trust the other side, the less time we have to create the culture that we all want to live in. Alan, I hope your wife is starting to feel better and I hope that Disney cuts you a check soon. And for the rest of us, I hope that we will be able to create the next chapter in whatever we want to build in this culture that is based on the ideas that are created by people who care. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with answers to questions from all over the world. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo Workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. (laughs) 
Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings Seth, this is Steven out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any other episode or whatever's on your mind, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. A huge range of questions came in. I'm going to do my best to get to them. We'll start with a speed round. Hi, Seth. Jason from St. Paul, Minnesota here. Quick question about definitions of terms. How do you define classes versus workshops versus seminars versus, let's say, experiences? How do you define learning versus education? And finally, how do you define school? What is a school in your opinion? Thanks for everything you do. Thanks, Jason. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but here we go. The easy one, the difference between learning and education. Learning is voluntary. Learning is brings enrollment with it. Learning is usually informal. Learning is something that we want to do. Riding a bike is something we learn to do. Walking, talking, juggling, anything where we are leaning into it, exposing ourselves to momentary incompetence on our way to getting where we hope to go is learning. Education is a system of coercion. It is based on grades. If you ask the question, will this be on the test? You've just identified the fact that this is education. You're not doing it to learn it. You're doing it to get a piece of paper, to get through it, to get to the other side. Education has a role, and it is possible to learn something while you are being educated. But we should be really clear about the difference between them. So during the pandemic, lots of schools, lots of compulsory education institutions have done something they call at-home learning. However, parents have instantly discovered it's not at-home learning, it's at-home education. It's butts and seats, it's tests and scores, and proving that you paid attention. Learning would be self-directed, student-centered activities where we exposed ourselves to the things we wanted to learn and leveled up. So where do we do education? In the common vernacular, we do it in school. That's different than a workshop where we work. That's the point. You are doing the work versus a seminar, which in the business context might be just time away from work. In the higher education sense, it's the place where you are talking with your peers under the guidance of somebody who knows how to make it possible for you to talk and learn at the same time. Thanks for letting me rant about that. Hey, Seth, this is Anton from Hamburg, Germany. In the preview of your latest book, The Practice, I read that one of the most asked questions on this podcast is the question, how do I find my purpose? How do I find my passion? And I, too, struggle with that question. I struggle with finding my voice and finding a voice that is useful for the world that I want to represent. And I heard you answer that question a couple of times. And the answer you give in the book is, it's not about doing what you love. It's 
about loving what you do. But somehow this answer doesn't lead to an aha moment for me. So my question is, what am I hiding from? What is it I have to see, understand or realize to understand that the answer you gave is the way? Thank you for all the work you do and stay healthy. Thank you, Anton, and I hear you. The thing is that deciding that your purpose is in the work as opposed to seeking work that matches your purpose can be unsatisfying in the short run. It's unsatisfying in the short run because there isn't a lightning bolt from the sky. A light bulb doesn't go off over your head. You're not suddenly fulfilled. It's a process. It lines up a lot with the way some of the Stoics thought about philosophy. You can't control what the world sends your way. But what you can control is your response or reaction to that. And the same thing is true with the work we do. I'm not talking about our hobbies. Our hobbies, things we do for ourselves, things that do not involve a promise to the marketplace, our hobbies are sacrosanct. Don't wreck them by trying to turn them into an Etsy shop because it's a totally different thing. But once you make it your work, you're not doing it just for you. You're doing it for the people you seek to serve. And that choice, that grown-up commitment, eventually leads you to the path of loving what you do because you can work at it. And as you work at it, as you work on the practice, you will begin to discover that it's better than not doing it. It's better than showing up with your arms folded saying, well, I'll survive today, but I'm definitely not going to feel engaged. No, I prefer the alternative which is choosing to be engaged with the work you're going to do. Hey Seth, Abhishek here from Mumbai. Um, I've been reading your book, uh, The Practice, and you talk a lot about one way to defeat the ego and to get to work is to be generous. So think about the people that will benefit from the work. I find it quite easy to do when I, when it comes to, let's say, my day job where I have relationships with my colleagues, with my clients, and even the eventual stakeholders who benefit from what I do. But what about more personal projects? So what if what about uh, the music that I'm trying to make or you know, a, a business I'm trying to bootstrap, which is very early stage and I just can't visualize or think about who might actually benefit from this work, uh, it, it kind of feels like it's a, it's a pretty selfish endeavor because it's something I feel like doing and I think about uh, what I might personally gain from it. So how, how, do you, how, do I, how do I become generous when I just don't know who that person might be in the future who might benefit from this work? Thanks. Thank you, Abhishek, for this question and for your honesty. As we just talked about your hobbies, your hobbies can be selfish. They should be selfish. They're about you. That's why you're spending time and energy on them. But that business you believe you should start, that side hustle that you are working on, it is so much easier to get it right if you begin from a posture of generosity. Who wants to hear about this? Who would miss this if you didn't build it? Who eagerly will pay for it 
because they don't want to wait in line somewhere else. That when we can approach a business this way, not simply to find a niche and fill it, but to decide to show up to help people who are glad that we are there, that opens the door for us getting the right answer. The world isn't even close to running out of unsolved problems. You just have to find one and commit to solving it. And I'll finish with this question, which I heard in a couple forms from a few people, including one person in Malaysia. Hey, Seth, it's Tony. Today's November 2nd. I read your blog post this morning encouraging people to vote and habitual non-voters. And it made me think of two things that's been on my mind. One, you know, it, we're making an assumption here, but if we assume that habitual non-voters are not engaged in the process, do we really want to encourage them to vote if they are making an uninformed decision? And that goes one way or the other. It doesn't matter if they're going to vote red or blue or, or up or down. Don't we want engaged voters? Wouldn't we want 100% of engaged voters to vote, not necessarily uh, those who are unengaged and are just voting based on who they might have read the latest lawn sign or seen on TV? Thanks for all you do. Thank you for this, Tony. It is very tempting to try to make it so that only the right people vote, so that only people who have done, quote, their homework vote. The problem lies in who's going to pick Who's going to decide? Robert Heinlein, who was a visionary science fiction writer, wasn't a particularly good political scientist. And one of his ideas was that only veterans should be allowed to vote. Well, we can come up with lots of rules about who should be allowed to vote. And inevitably, making those rules always ends up worse than simply encouraging everyone to vote. The challenge that we have, I think, is a communications challenge, which is what do people learn before they vote and what do they learn as time passes in between votes? And we're not doing a very good job of that. A, we decided that profit-seeking mass media was the best way to inform people about what was happening. And B, we decided that an unlimited amount of money could be spent by corporations and lobbyists to communicate to people what the issues of the day are. I think rather than deciding who can't vote, it might be worth spending some cycles deciding how are we going to inform everyone? How are we going to lay out agendas that aren't simply about the crisis of the day, about personal battles between one person and another? How do we turn our narrative away from professional wrestling and focus it more on long-term chronic problems, because informed correctly, I trust the people around me. We have way more in common than we would like to admit, but we have divided ourselves. That's happened because of the game theory of the best way to provoke people into donating money and taking action. I'm hopeful, but not optimistic, that recent events will help us understand that we need to do a much better job of organizing our culture, the flow of information, what it means to be people like us doing things like this, how to get back to first principles, how to decide that fighting among ourselves on this one and only planet that we have is not the best way to make things better. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible 
or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.